Hi, and welcome to the Internet Marketing Show that gives you, amongst other things, simple, proven, and practical steps to build your very own successful online business. Here's your host, the village marketer himself, Peter Beckenham. Hello, and welcome to this very special podcast. My name is Peter Beckenham, the village marketer, and today I want to share with you a conversation I had with an incredible man by the name of Andrew Thorpe. Andrew is a storytelling genius. In fact, he's created a thing called the Storytelling Manifesto. He's also known as the Multi-Story Man. And apart from being a storyteller extraordinaire, he also is a leadership coach. He's a TED speaker. He's an author, a well-known author, and a genuine all-round good guy. So it was with great pleasure I'd like to introduce you to a conversation we had recently together and I hope you enjoy the sharing of the stories we had between each other. When you come across an Aussie who's been a high school principal, an insurance salesman, fell in love with a Thai woman, moved to a remote village near the Cambodian border and now teaches people how to sell without selling, well, you really want to hear more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Peter Beckenham, a wise man, a positive force and a fellow storyteller. I'm Andrew Thorpe, welcome to Leaning Forward. This is just a joy to be able to speak to you today because you and I, I think, are kindred spirits. I think we are too, and I've got a million questions for you. <laughs> well, let, well let, let me start first, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into a, a, a back and forth, I'm sure. So I, I, I think that we're kindred spirits because you talk about um, helping people to sell more without it feeling like selling or without selling. Um, and you've also had a, a reinvention or, or two in your in your time professionally, um, and I relate to that as well. So let's deal with the latter first, because tell the listeners where you live, um, how how you ended up in a small Thai village, um, how you became known as the village marketer, uh, and and what you used to do. You know, there was you know. T- tell us a little bit about your reinvention. Um, I'm delighted. To, uh, that you asked the question because it's it's an important part of my life, Andrew. Um, yes, I live in a remote little Thai village <clears throat> way up near the Cambodian border. It's well and totally off the, the tourist track. And you might wonder, why in the hell is he living up there? What's the point of that? Well, I married a really wonderful Thai lady 20, or nearly 25 years ago now. And we've got two beautiful girls and grandchildren and a whole shitty match. But about... And, and we were living in Bangkok, and I, that was my base because I was providing, I, doing a, a consultancy business around Southeast Asia, Singapore, Philippines, Malaysia, Hong Kong, etc. But but Bangkok was my base, all right? And in fact, I don't know whether I've ever mentioned this to you before, but the re- I found my wife by the fact that she was, in charge of the housemaids of the hotel that I was living in. And I actually lived in a hotel, okay, the Grand Hyatt, okay, in Bangkok. I lived in there and I was there every morning. And then in the afternoons, I would go out and do my presentations or consultancy work in the evenings, probably run workshop sessions, etc. And I was dealing mainly with the hospitality industry in those days, right, helping them to get more bums in beds, so to speak, all right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And my wife, to be, used to come in and check to see whether the housekeeping people had done their job properly, but she never spoke a single word to me. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> and, the future, and I was there. Okay. And I was there. And, and I, because I was preparing for the work in the afternoon. And a couple of times I tried to make a conversation, but I couldn't do it. I mean, she was just like persona non grata. I was not there. Right. Anyway, after about three or four months, she finally said hello. And then I realized that she could speak very good English. Okay. 
Long story short, six months later, we had a lunch together, provided I was prepared to accept three other girls that came with her because she didn't trust any men, especially foreigners, right? Mm. And then 12 months after that, I married her. So that's, <laughs> so that's the reason why I stayed in Thailand. Yeah. Why did I move to the village? Because about, oh, Andrew, I don't know, I'm guessing now, maybe 12, 14 years ago, um, my wife said to me, can we, can we move and live in the village? And, and I said, why? I mean, I've been here before, but, but visiting here and living here is two completely different things, obviously, right? Because it's pretty poor. But she was concerned because she's the oldest child and her mother and father were getting old and there's no social security or that sort of stuff. And in Thailand, the, the, the whole approach to looking after elderly members of the family is a family concern. There's no such things as retirement villages and things like that. This is a family concern issue. So I had to respect, and I do respect that, to be quite frank. Okay. So we decided to move back, not move back, to move to the village. And because and I built a house, which was probably the worst investment I ever made in my life, because I'll never, I'll never get the return on the money. <laughs> but that's why I'm here. Okay. And when I got here, and because my wife said, you need to slow down. Okay, you need to slow down, Peter. And I thought, okay, so I did slow down. But after about two or three months, I got pretty bored. And, and, I, and as I said to you once before, I think, I can only speak to the buffaloes for so long. I need to do something, right? <laughs> I need to do something. Yeah. And in, in, in my previous careers, I was both a teacher as well as in sales and marketing and in the corporate world and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, why in the heck don't I use that experience as a teacher and my sales experience? Because I was teaching and, and consulting with the hospitality industry in terms of sales and marketing anyway, right? Yeah. I said, why don't I do that online? Now, to do that, I had to pay about three and a half thousand US dollars to get a connection to our house because no one here had internet, right, at all. And once the connection was here, for the first three or four days, I had a crowded house because everyone was looking at this whole newfangled thing called the internet. Right? They'd never seen it before. I then decided that I would provide an online coaching service to, to people who had already started in business but, but were struggling to sell what they were good at doing because they felt uncomfortable or sleazy or salesy yeah. when they about approaching a potential client for their services. Yeah. And most of my clients are coaches, by the way. Okay? Right. And they're darn good at it, Andrew. They're really good at it. But they're absolutely terrible when it comes to actually promoting themselves and their services. Mm. And is, it, is that because they don't want to feel they're pushing themselves on people? That Correct. That feels uncomfortable. Correct. Correct. Mm. And that's why I teach them. And I, and I totally concur with that. And for, the, for 36 years, I've been training people, don't do that. Mm. Don't try and convince or persuade anybody to buy anything. I mean, that's really the used car salesman life insurance agent, which is a bit of a story. I should that's, right. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, can I just take you back a little bit? Let's go back to the teaching thing, because you were a, a senior high school teacher. Was it in New South Wales for, yes. for many years? Yes. And you taught, so was it geography and economics? you got a good memory, yeah. And in fact, I was a principal at 33. So what, and my, two of my kids are teachers now. They're, they're 28 and 26, respectively, with a, a younger boy as well who's just finishing university. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have some really interesting conversations with them about how they engage the classroom, how they engage the kids. So what, what crossed over from the world of teaching kids for you? into what you do now? Was there any sort of transferable skills there? Absolutely. I mean, it's all about engagement. It's all about, it's all about being a good listener. It's all about being a storyteller, Andrew. It's all about showing genuine interest and care and concern and empowering people to do the best they can. All those things are an essential part of teaching and an essential part of my coaching. It's the same mm. thing. Yeah. The reason why I left, I mean, I loved it, Andrew. I love teaching. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's in me. It's in my blood, all right? Mm. And in fact, I'm still doing it with adults rather than kids when you think about it. But the reason I left is because I was no longer able to teach because they kept promoting me. And then in the end, I became a principal and they wouldn't even let me have one class. And I'm an administration nightmare, so why would I want to hang around? Oh, I see. So the the promotion... Right, so the promotion you were, you were offered would take you away from the classroom and it was the classroom experience that you loved. Correct. Yeah. And all I asked them to do is I will stay here as the principal. I had no problem in leading the staff because I'd been a, a, a faculty head for quite some time. I had a staff of my own of uh, 15 people. And the staff were very supportive to me because I went through the, the deputy principal ranks as well. So I don't have any problem dealing with people and I wouldn't say managing, leading them, right? leading people. But I wanted the opportunity to still have a classroom experience. Mm. That's all I wanted, just yeah. one class. Yeah. Just one class. And they said, no, you can't do it. Yeah. So I said, I've got to go. I, I, was, I was disillusioned because of the fact that I could, I could no longer enjoy a passion that is of, of, of getting the children to really, and I mean, my, my key, key area was not geography, but it was economics. And it's probably the most boring subject in the world if you'd use a textbook. And I never use a textbook. Yeah. I used to use the newspapers and I used to bring it to life. Right? That's why I used to tell stories to them and get them to understand what's going on in the real world. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Interesting, yeah. my eldest son teaches economics as well. So he'll, he'll right. be interested to hear what you have to say about this. Well, tell him, because the only reason I used the textbook was to come down with a definition so they can put it in the exam paper. Yeah. The rest of it was based on them working with me and talking with me about what's going on in the financial news at the moment, why would that happen, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Now, I, I kept in mind what the syllabus was, but, but I tried to bring it to life in terms yeah. of reality. Does yeah. that make sense? Well, it does. And there was a great example recently, you know, when the um, the uh, the container ship got stuck in the Suez Canal and, mm. and, and blocked the Suez Canal for goodness knows how many days. I mean, that's a fantastic news story to use for all sorts of reasons in terms of the complexity and the interconnected nature of of commerce um, and yeah. the consequences of something small going wrong. Uh, yes. you know with, with having enormous consequences so the, i think the you know news stories are such a gift when it comes to educating an audience or engaging people it is and 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 to finish where i to put you back in the picture for me <clears throat> i said to my wife <coughs> excuse me because i was married previously to an australian lady also a lovely lady right and i said i'm leaving teaching and she, i mean she just couldn't believe it could not believe it Long story short, I said, think of the worst job you can think of. Think of the worst job you can think of. And she said, why? I said, because if I can do it different than everybody else, then I think I can do pretty well. Okay. The next morning at breakfast was the coldest breakfast you've ever seen in your life. There was no talking going on. She was angry with me. I could see it coming out of her ears, right? Long story short, she said, the two worst jobs I can think of is a second-hand car salesman or a life insurance agent. I said, good, thank you very much. So I finally became a life insurance agent. <laughs> you didn't go down the car route. <laughs> no, but I had trouble getting a job as a, as a life insurance agent anyway because all the managers knew me as a, as, the, as, as a teacher and they thought I was joking. Anyway. Mm. So I spent time in the life insurance industry. And you know what, Andrew? I never sold a single thing but made a lot of money. I never, I didn't even know what the products were. I employed two of my very best students to come with me and I asked the company to train them with all the information they needed in terms of product knowledge, et cetera. Don't teach them how to sell anything. I will do that. I, I just want them to be there as the encyclopedia of knowledge. Mm. So I would walk in to see someone like Andrew and you would know me. I had a very high, because this is in Canberra, the capital of Australia, and I had a very high presence there anyway. Right? From both the sporting career I had and my teaching career that had, and also within the Rotary movement, because I was very much involved with that. And I would talk to you, Andrew, and I would, and and really I would say, please don't ask me any questions about life insurance. I haven't got a clue. I'm not here for that. I'm here to find out what you need. Okay? Mm. 
And if you're prepared to share with me some of these thoughts, then maybe we can come up with a solution, but I haven't got a clue. Mm -hmm. And I just used that approach and it worked for me. So this was very much the opposite of, look, I've got this product that's fantastic and I'm going to explain it and sell it to you. It was very much about, now tell me about you. I want to know. I wanted to empower the Andrew Thorpes of this world to clarify to themselves what was important to them. Mm. And if it was important to them, why hadn't they done something about it up until now? Mm. And if they had done something about it, what what happened? Why didn't it work for you? Or if you feel uncomfortable about something, what, why is that? And then I would simply empower you to make the decision. And I would ask permission. May I have the two kids here share perhaps a possible solution for you. Because I didn't know the solution. They had it. I didn't have a clue. I said, I I don't know the ins and outs of technical things, but I will make sure that what they deliver to you fits what you need. And it's really your decision. So I'll let you make the decision. And people respected that. And they, because it was the opposite of the typical life insurance sales approach. Does that make sense? It does. And one of the things I was, I was going to say is that I, I sometimes think that people who have a passionate belief in what they're selling, that can be an obstacle in a way because they just can't stop talking about it. They're so excited about it, but it's all it's all about them. It's all about the product. And it sometimes blinds them to the other side, which is the customer's story and where they're coming from. Yeah, that's true. You should really... I mean, my passion is all about serving and helping people. You can't lose. If I genuinely go into a, into an appointment with an Andrew Thorpe of this world and with, with a mindset of serving and helping you in the best way I possibly can, whether in fact you become a client or not, doesn't matter. Mm. I want to help you get clarity about what's important to you. I can't lose. And the reason either I get a client or I get an advocate. Mm. One or the other, mm. because you really appreciate what I did to help you clarify what's going on in your yeah. life. One of the other interviewees um, on this um, podcast, Peter, is a guy called Gary Corrin, who's an old friend of mine. Um, and he told me there was a, a great quote by Zig Ziglar, the, the American guru, uh, marketing guru. And he said it was something along the lines of you, you'll get everything that you want if you help other people get what they want. Yeah. And again, this is serving, serving others. Yep. So that's it. So that's the reason why I went from school teaching into life insurance and then left the life insurance game because I wanted to run my own business. Okay. But I wanted to do it not from a a life insurance perspective, but from working with small businesses. Mm. But then that went to corporate areas in terms of, um, the retailing, because it's the same thing you're dealing with people, whether they are one man show or a corporation, to be quite yeah. frank, people are people, Andrew, and they have the same darn challenges, okay? It's just a matter of you adjusting to the circumstances, that's all. So in the work you do now, Peter, with, I mean, you describe them in your in your LinkedIn profile as solopreneurs, a lot, a lot of them are individual coaches. Um, do you have a sort of a methodology or an approach or a system that you work with them on? Is there, a, is there a thing that you do with them or is it just more broadly getting to know them and steering them in the right direction? The top line is working with you one-on-one. That's a limited number because I have, because of the time factor and you mm-hmm. can't scale it, right? But for those people, I create the program around them. Let's look at where you want to go with things. What's stopping you from doing it right now? Let's identify with the clarity of where your problems are. And I'll work with you to overcome those problems in, to ensure that you get the sales that you're looking for in whatever you have. And so it's not a, sort of an off the shelf thing. This is my thing no, that I sell. It's the no, 10 No, I have off the shelf things that are basic training things that, that, that are a passive income stream for me. Okay. Mm. I, I mean, they're, they're, they're videos and audio based sectors. Okay. Yeah. But that, that's at a lower level of coaching. Does that make sense? Mm, it is. It is. Implement. So let's turn the tables now, Peter. You, um, you were taken by the, the storytelling word 
in my profile when when I first approached you and you accepted and we started corresponding with each other. Yes. So what what is it about the S word that intrigues you? Well, Andrew, you you are the author of a thing called, if, if my memory, I wrote it down, the Storytelling Manifesto, is that right? I did write a manifesto. Yes, I did. Well, the reason that I'm interested, Andrew, in, in, in the fact that you are a great storyteller is because storytelling in the marketing and sales arena completely eliminates your competition. If you get your story right, you don't have any competition because you're unique. All right? So my question to Andrew is, do you have a simple formula for storytelling that will work for people? Well, d- just go back to that first point you made about, about the fact that you, you know, your story, I think, is the thing that makes you unique because there's only one of you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you talk about things that are more abstract in terms of maybe the product that you're offering and, 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 ha- and what it costs and where you're based and all the rest of it, all those things can be copied by other people. That's not the thing that differentiates you. But all your experiences are the things that differentiate you. So the more you can weave your experiences into the message that you've got, the more necessarily unique you'll come across. So in terms of a formula or a structure, the simplest one that I use, I've actually renamed it recently. It's called PRO, which is pain, remedy and outcome. So there is obviously a very simple packaging of a proposition where here's a problem that people have. This is what we do to fix it, the remedy. And this is the outcome that you can expect afterwards. But I think the interesting thing with pro, because it is ridiculously simple, it's, it's, you know, there have been many variations of the pain, the remedy and the outcome before. But I think what's interesting about it is that there's a, there's an obvious column and a less obvious column for each of those three things. So yes, there might be a problem. That's the obvious thing when you state what the issue is, but the more interesting thing in the less obvious column is why is there a problem and why has it persisted? I think you use the expression, you know, why, why have you not done anything, done anything about it yet when you were talking about, you know, dealing with people in the financial services world. So if you can dig a little bit deeper and get to the root of the issue, you're not just looking at the symptom, you're actually looking at the root cause. And that's, yeah, that's often to do with psychology and, or circumstances yeah. and context. And then the pain becomes a much more interesting story when you're in that less obvious column. Well, that's interesting, Andrew, because quite often when I'm having a discussion with a client and we are looking at, to quote you, the pain or the problem, the very first thing they come up with is not necessarily the real issue. Mm. It's It's the superficial thing. You've got to dig deep underneath that, as you just mentioned there, to find out what the real issue is. Yeah. Okay, so you so we, in your storytelling, you are saying that's the same approach, correct? Yes. So if you if you talk a little bit about you know why the problem persists, let's say you're you're, um, you're in the uh, the personal fitness training business. Yes. It's not just that people want to get fit. What's interesting is what's holding them back, and why do they feel awkward or embarrassed when they walk into a conventional gym? Or, you know, the fact that they might be exercising, but if they're eating badly, then they're undoing all the good work they're doing with their exercise. And why are they eating badly? Well, maybe because they were brought up in an environment where, you know, there wasn't much food around or it was too easy to buy takeaways and, 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 uh, and um, you know, mass produced food rather than fresh fruits and vegetables. So if you can get at the root cause, I think that actually makes it a more interesting story to tell as well. Yes. So, but, the, but there's a less obvious the column in the other two as well, Peter. In the in the remedy, you know, the, the product, the service that you offer. What yeah, I'm what makes? Ask you that. Yeah, what what because makes? Once you've got the pain organised, how do you introduce the remedy? So, well, I mean, you don't even need to do it in that order. You know, you don't even need to say, "Here's the problem." You might start off with, "Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where things were like this?" So you might actually start off with the future. And then bring people back down to earth and saying, but of course, <laughs> life isn't like that because stuff gets in the way. And then you might bring them back to the pain. So there, there are ways of weaving in this, the, these three elements in a very conversational way. It doesn't, it's not a, 
necessarily a mechanical structured process. It, it's much more organic than that. But I think when you're when you're talking about things like the remedy, you know, I, I'd be interested to know, well, how do you do what you do in the way that you do it? Is there a particular what Seth Godin would describe as your art? You know, the Peter Beckenham way. What's the Andrew Thorpe way of doing things? And, and you know, what, how would you describe that? And where did that come from? So again, the, the remedy, you, you have the surface factual version, but then you have the deeper, more interesting version, which gives a sense of why you're different, what's your, your unique approach, because it's got to be through your own experiences and your beliefs. And it's got to be based on being transparent, totally honest, of course. And to me, I'm asking a question to you. What about the word vulnerable? Andrew, mm -hmm. in terms of becoming a good storyteller, is that is that an important aspect of being a good storyteller? Being vulnerable, letting people see that you are real, that you are not perfect, that you have actually had mistakes in your life before and overcome them, etc. Well, I, I'll, I'll answer that question um, with a story of my own, Peter, because I, I do a lot of public speaking. I love public speaking. And I had an occasion when I was invited to speak at a marketing conference in Bucharest in Romania. So I, I, I stand on stage. There's about 120 people in like a lecture theater. I've got my slides, number one slide on the screen behind me. I've got my I've got my clicker that they provided for me and I'm clicking away and nothing's happening. The slide won't move from slide one to slide two. So I'm getting a little bit frustrated. I'm clicking the forward button. I look to the side, to the techie guy at the side. Look, can you, can you help me think this, this, this isn't working? Maybe the battery is, could you help me with this? And he comes on stage, Peter, and he takes the, the clicker and he does this. <laughs> now you'll be all right. I had it upside down. <laughs> so when you're, when you're trying to forward click, but it's actually a backward click and you're on slide one, nothing happens. <laughs> uh, what a great story. <laughs> so, so, but, but actually that got me off to a good start because it, it, it loosened everybody up. It showed me as a flawed human, uh, you know, individual who, who nonetheless had hopefully something interesting to say. So you, you have lots of um, times when you've messed up but it doesn't necessarily detract from your status as an expert in something with something to offer. It, it just humanizes you and warms you to the audience. But if they feel that your mistake fundamentally undermines their confidence in your expertise, then that's another issue altogether. That's, that's problematic. It, it does take some guts, however, Andrew, to be vulnerable because you've got to, be, you've got to really know what you're, what you're on about. But at, but at the same time, be prepared to share that you're not perfect, that you have made mistakes so people can resonate and relate with you. Yeah. Okay? But it's all, it's, to me, I mean, vulnerability, and that's why I asked you, is being vulnerable an important part of storytelling? And, you're, and the answer is yes. Okay. Obviously. Well, it's yes, Peter, because, and, and again, I, I did, um, I recorded a podcast yesterday about a story that Stephen Fry told. Do you know who Stephen Fry is, the, the actor? Yes. He's, one of, he's one of our national treasures. Yes. If, if you used to watch Blackadder, he was uh, he, he, he was always, always featured in the Blackadder yeah. series. Um, and he's, he's definitely one of our national treasures. And he's the he's the man who reads the audio books for the Harry Potter books. OK. And he told a wonderful story about when he was recording the, the, the third book, The Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, he had a problem with one particular line that J.K. Rowling had written in the books. And it was only three words and it was Harry pocketed it. And he couldn't say it. It was Harry pocketed it, did it, it. Harry pocketed it, did it. Harry pocketed He couldn't say it. And all the engineers in the studio were, were laughing their heads off and they were saying, look, well, well, I'll have another go later tonight. And at lunchtime, he rang J.K. Rowling or Joanne, as she was then known. And said, look, I'm having difficulty with this line. Harry pocketed it, did it. Would you mind if I said, and Harry put it in his pocket? And he said, there was a long pause at the other end of the line. And she said, no. <laughs> in, in her best witch's voice, he said. Um, 
And and the, and there's a lovely end to the story where he says, and the line Harry Pocketed did it appears in every subsequent novel. As if to say, I'm going to get back at you and put this in. So you've got to read, read it again and again and again. And it's a lovely story because I think it shows a degree of humility to show that, you know, you're, you're a very erudite, a very articulate individual because he's, he's a beautiful speaker. And yet he couldn't handle that line and everyone was laughing at him. Um, so it, it's a lovely story. And it struck me that there are in, in good storytelling, there are three hums. That's H-U-M words. Mm -hmm. So there's often humour. There's humility. And there's humanity. That's clever. I love and I, that. I, I think those three hums were, were definitely present in Stephen Fry's story. Um, but I think yeah. when, you, when you're revealing a weakness, you know, you, if you reveal a weakness from a position of strength in terms of your own confidence in yourself, and the, the audience has to feel they're in safe hands with you as a speaker. It doesn't matter if you lose your way a little bit or you fumble a clicker or, you know, the slides suddenly don't work or there's a power cut or your pen runs out of ink. It doesn't really matter as long as they still have confidence in you. Andrew, with your permission, can I use that? I, I, I obviously refer to you, but I love the humour, humility and humanity. Yeah. That is really very clever. <laughs> You've encapsulated a lot of things in three words there. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Stephen Fry, are you still a frustrated actor wanting to become an actor? I mentioned you mentioned that to me once in a conversation. You'd love to be an actor, or you admired the acting profession, or worse that effect. Yeah, well, I'm basically using the podcast so I can try funny accents and and little little <laughs> <laughs> little little sayings that I can try. So yes, all, what, always a frustrated actor. What about what about a singing career? You mentioned that as well. You've got a very good memory, Peter. I, I have a friend called Anne Moore, who's a singing coach. Um, mm -hmm. She's based about forty-five minutes drive from where I live, and I've actually signed up for some singing lessons with her. But then the pandemic came along, so I've sort of interrupted my lessons a little bit. And um, so yeah, might might get back to that. She she's great fun, Anne. You're not going to burst into song in a podcast, are you? I no, I think <laughs> I think they might switch off or turn the sound down at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but no, storytelling has has really changed my career completely. I, I the, the reason it came about, and you probably know this because I've spoken to you about this before, is that I started helping people to present better because there is an enduring demand for you know uh, avoiding death by PowerPoint. But it struck me that what people were saying wasn't as interesting as it could be. Mm. You know, they didn't have a story to tell. They didn't have little stories to illustrate things, little vignettes. Um, they either didn't have the knowledge in terms of the, the story to hand, or they didn't have the confidence to tell it or the skill to tell it and weave it into some kind of explanation. So that's really where my work originated. It came out of helping people to present better. But of course, right. where you and I cross over a lot is in what, what you would term, I guess, conversational selling, yes. where there is, I, I say there's a, there's a PPP version of my work, which is pre-prepared presentations. And there's an SSS version of my work, which is spontaneous speaking situations, um, which I guess this is one of them. So when, when you have a spontaneous speaking situation, you don't really know where the conversation is going to go. It's more organic, but you've got to be a really good listener. You've got to pick up on little nuggets that people give you or little offers that, that come dangling if you, if you have the ears to hear them. So this is where I think you, your work and mine crosses over quite a lot, less in the <coughs> speaking, but more in the, in the conversational side. Yeah, because, I mean, to me, conversations are the heart of relationship building, <clears throat> whether in business or whatever it is, okay? Mm. And if you can't hold a, an effective conversation, then then your your ability to do anything in business is extremely limited. There's no doubt about that. And to me, the, the elements of conversational selling include storytelling. I don't have your expertise, Andrew, in, in storytelling, but I do coach my people to... In, to make sure when they when they are 
providing um, a story to people that has got an emotional base to it because people can relate to the emotional base. They don't want, they don't want a day one, I did this and day two, I did this, or year one, I did this, or year two, I did. They want something they can relate to. <clears throat> and, and so I teach them to, to, to share an emotional story to start any presentation. A real emotional story, and it doesn't have to be very long, but it's something that, that gets the audience's attention. And at the end of the presentation, by all means, I can have a call to action to, to get people to, to take the next step, whatever it may be, to, to, to get on a call with them, to join a, a community or whatever it is, or buy stuff. Yeah? But they don't finish it. They finish by, <clears throat> excuse me, closing the loop on the emotional story they happen with. And because I found that in my limited knowledge of storytelling, which is nowhere near yours, I found that by using an emotional opening and closing to, to, a, a, to a presentation, leaves people to wanting more from you. Mm, mm. It brings out the power of the story even more. Mm. And I love the idea of, of circling back to what you started with because it sort of tops and tails it nicely. You know, you, you... I, I'll give you a simple example in one minute, all right? Mm -hmm. For example, when I let, decided to leave teaching to go into sales, my father was absolutely disgusted in me. Absolutely disgusted. You're throwing away your university degree. You're throwing away your opportunities in education. And what you're joining on a life insurance industry? My God, Peter, what's wrong with you? I can't believe a son of mine had been so stupid, right? When I finished doing a presentation, I'll come back and close that loop and I'll say, by the way, I had great pleasure after 12 months in the sales arena of sending my mother and father on a world trip for the first time ever in their lives. And my father said to me quietly, hmm, Peter, maybe sales was your thing after all. <laughs> yeah, so it's an emotional opening and closing, but people recall those things more than anything else they do they do well they'll always remember things that they that, that are associated with an emotion yeah you know they'll yeah. remember the things that that they felt during what you had to say andrew can i ask some more things about you because it's been a long time since we've spoken yeah right? are you still involved in coaching with leadership well yes absolutely absolutely yeah i mean i, I have telling that I've got quite a diverse client base because some of the clients, I mean, I was teaching a young woman last night who's doing an MBA at Manchester University, sorry, Manchester Business School. Um, so she's just a single individual, you know, not no infrastructure behind her, just her. Um, and she really needs to build up her confidence a little bit. And that's why she's interested in, in working with me and developing a story. Right. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, I'm working with people who are involved with the World Health Organization. They are, um, you know, they, they work for PwC or some of the big consulting firms uh, or a big Dutch bank that I was working with recently. So they are definitely in the leadership sphere. They might not be the, the top leaders within the organization, but they're often seen as aspiring leaders or the future leaders, um, typically in their 30s, 40s, sometimes the 50s. Um, but a, a lot of this work that I do around storytelling is about leadership, but leadership might be selling an idea. You know, it might be thought leadership. It's not just leadership in the more conventional sense of the word. It's, it's helping people to understand and appreciate the value of your ideas if you're trying to shift something in people. So in that sense, it's, it's all about leadership in a way. That's interesting. I mean, you're saying it's not necessarily the C-suite level, but maybe the level down or middle management area. That's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or, or, as I say, individuals who are looking to maybe start up a, a movement of some kind, a charity right. or, a, you know, to shift perception around something within the, the, their sector of interest. Because there's always been a fascination of mine, and that is that quite often people have been promoted beyond their capacity because they were good at something, but they were never trained to do the job that they were promoted into. Mm. Case in point, school principal, right? I met one very poor administrator, right? Yeah, yeah. And so when that happens, my understanding and my, and my experience 
with people is they micromanage people because that's what they're good at. But they don't lead them. They manage them. They don't lead them. Yeah, yeah. So when you're doing your leadership coaching, do you talk about those sort of issues? With oh, people? sure, yeah. But the, the, most of the time, the, the typical client for me in the corporate world would be somebody who has um, developed deep um, expertise in, in a technical sphere, you right. know, one of the professions typically. Um, yes. And then they are asked to go out and bring in business. And they, they look a little bit alarmed and they say, well, I didn't really sign up for that kind of thing. So they don't have the whole package of, of skills. They have the technical domain, which is the, the bedrock of, of what they do. Because without that, you know, they can't do their work. But they're, they're not comfortable um, selling, as, as you well know. You know, you, you teach people to sell without, without it feeling like selling. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a, in a similar field, but I call it something different. And my, my approach is slightly different. But it's very much about helping them to sell themselves as much as the knowledge that they have and to explain complicated things in simple terms. And but when it comes to managing people, I agree that they're often promoted to what is the saying? You, you, you get promoted to your level of incompetence. <laughs> and, and, and in the teaching world, I mean, I have some knowledge of this now through, you know, the, the discussions I have with my kids. And being a good teacher is not necessarily the right preparation for managing adults. So you might be managing a classroom and managing behavior amongst kids in a classroom, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're taken over as a team leader or a manager of a team, a department, that you're going to be able to do that effectively. Tell me more. Well, because it's not just about managing behavior in the classroom and and about dispensing knowledge amongst the children. It's now about dealing with people's um, feeling of perhaps being threatened in their role by new procedures coming in or a new head or a new deputy head or clashes of personality. Um, And and they're not always equipped to deal with those things. I think one of the one of the, the nicest phrases I ever heard was from the head of the um, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in, in London, who's like, you know, a ver- very senior civil servant. And he said, the art of diplomacy is the art of letting other people have your way. Isn't that a clever phrase? The art that of letting true. other people have your way. So in yeah. other words, they, because of the way you frame something, they then begin to adopt your idea and perhaps in, start to invest some of their own thinking as to how that idea might work in practice. But it's all because of the way you've explained it and the way you've got them to sort of gradually buy into it and then hand it over. It's not your idea being pushed on them. It then becomes their idea that they're sort of evolving. We think alike. That's exactly what I do in my sales coaching. You are empowering people to make a decision for themselves. Yeah. 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 But, Andrew, there is... I'm talking about leadership uh, coaching that you do. There are some very toxic environments, right, within the business community. What sort of experiences have you had there with trying to help people in the leadership roles? Um, it's not so much that, that they've been dealing with toxic issues. It's that they've, they've had to shift from being involved in the weeds, as the Americans would say, the detail of things, to then have to gravitate to a leadership role where they have to be above that kind of thing. They've got to start thinking strategically. They've got to start selling a future that doesn't exist yet, that people want to move towards. So their rhetoric has to change. They've got to sort of evolve into something that they've not been used to talking about before. Um, But they keep tending to get stuck in the detail of what they used to do because they're familiar with it. And they're much less... Mm. confident about selling that more strategic vision of the future and reminding people why the work they're doing matters. So with that in mind, how do you go about, in simplistic terms, I know this is a pretty complicated topic, but how do you go about improving a person's vision strategically? If they've been if they've been elevated to a position of leadership, mm. which is <clears throat> which is beyond their previous experiences, what would you what would be the first steps you would do with a manager? Well, I think what the most interesting relationship I always feel is the relationship between the macro picture and the micro. So if you can link 
people's behaviors and their little micro contributions to something big like this is moving us toward towards our ultimate destination this is an example of this value being lived out people start to see a connection between the work that they do daily and these broader sort of con concepts okay. so if you only ever talk about broader concepts people won't connect with it because they can't they can't think that way and if you only ever talk about the things that are happening, you know, day to day on the ground without linking it to something bigger, then it's too isolated. It's, it doesn't it's it's not part of something broader. It's not like it's like an individual jigsaw piece, but no one can see the big picture on the box as, as to what it what it's meant to look like in the future. OK, so from a leadership coaching perspective, are you saying that you need people to be totally honest with themselves in terms of their limitations and their understanding of where they are right now, correct? I think you've got to make them recognise the need for this different rhetoric, this, this sort of broader picture, this, this vision of the future. You've also got to make them recognise that there is a role that they have to play now to get the best out of people as opposed to just doing good work themselves. So if they buy into these areas which they know they need to move towards, but also admit that they're not there yet, then at least they're invested in the work that they need to do to get there. Right. Okay, because we're talking about elements of personal development now, aren't we, in terms of self-esteem and confidence and that sort of stuff? Well, the, the, we are, and there's a lot of imposter syndrome associated with, you know, being put in charge of a team or in charge of a company, taking on a new role um, and having to switch from that, you know, being in the weeds, in the detail, to this sort of broader stuff and, and delegating to other people and not, not micromanaging, which is where they felt comfortable before, because they know the jobs people are doing so well it's so easy for them to get into the detail, but they've got to resist and, and come back and allow people to fail, but give them some, you know, some sense of direction and, and instill confidence in them. You are a great storyteller and you can actually coach people in storytelling. You're a great leadership coach, right? You're also a speaker, right? And you've done TED Talks, correct? TED Talks? I've done three TEDx Talks, yes. Right, TEDx Talks. And you're an author, okay? If I was going to ask you which one of those was the you're most passionate about, what would it be? I, I still get a buzz out of creating a connection with a live audience. So, so I, I don't I don't actually seek um, public speaking engagements as, as often as I used to because I love working with people now on the development of their story. So I, 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 yes, I definitely still get the buzz when there is that connection created with it with a live audience. I mean, live audiences, I haven't experienced that for some time now. So I'm looking forward to this time where we can get back to having flesh and blood in front of me. <clears throat> but to, to be honest, Peter, that that now is beginning to be superseded by the thrill of seeing other people start to use storytelling to good effect. You know, the people I'm helping. I seem to get as much of a kick out of seeing them gravitate into this style of communicating as I do myself doing it with an audience. But your answer to my question raised another question for me. If speaking is really the thing that you are most passionate about, I mean, I appreciate the fact of the storytelling aspect, but if speaking is really the thing that gives you a real buzz, have you ever thought about coaching people about public speaking as well? Well, I, I do, Peter. Sometimes that, that's the thing I get asked. It's not, it's not where I position myself professionally because I position myself as a storytelling coach and consultant. So I'm very, very interested in helping them to develop their narrative. But obviously there are occasions where they will have to articulate that story on a stage. So they might initially come to me and say, look, could you help me with public speaking? But I normally move them away from that by saying, well, hang on a minute. What is it that you want to say? And then that evolves into a deeper conversation whereby they didn't realize that they hadn't thought through their message very well. Right. And they just thought, well, I'll get on stage and I'll <clears throat> sell my stuff. Well, hang on a minute. What, what is it that you're saying? And why should anybody care? Let's have a look at that first. Mm. But to use your 
analysis of probing with the pain, the remedy, and the outcome, okay? Their, their initial pain is their fear of public speaking, more than likely, correct? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a confidence thing where they, you know, they're, ha- they, they're asked to give presentations on a regular basis or they're starting to be perhaps as part of a new role and they're perhaps lacking confidence on, on the stage. They just get nervous. You need to build them up a little bit. But mm. for other people, they're almost overconfident in their ability to just wow the audience because suddenly they're given a load of platforms where they think they've got a great product and a great message but mm. they haven't. The message is lousy. It's mm. really dry and very pushy and salesy. So you almost have to reel them back a little bit and say, well, hang on a minute, let's just look at what you're saying here and see if mm. we can craft something that's a little less pushy and more pulley. The, mm. there's a, well, I can a, see a, I can see a, a lovely, real connection now. Yeah, there's a lovely saying too. that um, Dan Pink comes out with. Dan Pink is one of my favourite authors. To Sell is Human is one of his best books, I think. Um, And he said that uh, you want to move from irritation to agitation. So don't irritate people by pushing something on people. Stir something inside them. In other words, agitate rather than irritate. Lovely Um, to talk to you, Andrew. And I can see how your skills all link together. (laughs) Your leadership, your storytelling, your speaking skills, your writing skills, they're all part of an incredible resource that you can provide to people. So I wish you every success. Well, Peter, I've wanted to have this chat with you and record this for quite some time. So I'm so pleased to have done so. Um, And I I love your enthusiasm and your belief in your work. You're you're such a people person. I think you love people and you're interested in people. Um, And that's where I think we have so much uh, synergy between the two of us. So I wish you well with your work as well. And I hope your electrical storm calms down a bit there in there. In Thailand. We made it, Andrew. We made it. (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much. Best wishes for Thailand, my man. I wish you well. Okay. Bye-bye. You take care. Thanks so much for listening to the Internet Marketing Dinner Show with your host, the village marketer himself, Peter Beckenham. For more great content, go online, peterbeckenham.com. We'll catch you next time.